Hello, and a very happy and joyful Resurrection Sunday to you all. It's a great privilege to be preaching on this particular day of the year as we remember the resurrection of Jesus. We're living in a day when Christianity is under unprecedented attack. Every major Christian belief is being questioned and in many cases rejected. Of course, this is nothing new. There have always been people who have not accepted the claims of the gospel, the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. We read of Paul preaching in Acts 17 to the philosophers of the Areopagus. And we read this in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. So the claims of the Christian faith have always been contested. And so more than ever, we as Christians have to have confidence in what we believe. We need to be sure not just of what we believe, but also why we believe it. I think even in the church, we can be quick to make assumptions we, we can take Christian beliefs for granted or as givens. But in an unbelieving world, we all need to be sure about the foundation upon which our faith rests. We need to know not just what we believe, but why we believe it. And of course, the need to know why we believe what we believe comes into very sharp focus when we try to share our faith with others. People will say, well, why should they believe? Peter also once wrote these well-known words in 1 Peter 3.15. He says to us as Christians that we must always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. And in order for us to be able to give the reason, we have to know the reason. For too many Christians, their faith has just been something handed down to them, perhaps from their family, or they stumbled into faith in the church community through friends. Sometimes people sincerely know and love Jesus without really having a good grasp of the reasons to believe. So today is the day in the year that we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He wasn't the first person to ever rise from the dead. But he certainly is the most important. He's not the first, no. There were some characters in the Old Testament raised back to life. And Jesus brought people back to life, the most notable being Lazarus. So Jesus rising from the dead, was not the, it wasn't the first time that a person had come back from the dead. But his resurrection was a vindication of his ministry and the sign of God's acceptance 
of his sacrificial death for us. The Apostle Paul makes no bones about the significance of Jesus' resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes this, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. These are strong words from the Apostle Paul. The resurrection of Jesus is not an optional extra, a nice to have, an add-on to the Christian faith. It is of critical importance in the Christian faith. Everything in Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus being genuine. If Jesus was not resurrected, Paul writes, our faith is useless. People who share their faith are lying. We're not going to be saved. And quite frankly, people should feel sorry for us as Christians if Christ was not raised from the dead. As you can see, belief in the resurrection of Jesus was a big deal for Paul. The validity of Christianity rests upon the resurrection really having taken place. It's not just a myth, a, a nice story loaded with meaning. It's not just a metaphor for new life. Christ he didn't just rise again in spiritual form. He's more than an archetype. As Christians, we believe in the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's consider today some of the reasons why we can have confidence that Christ did rise from the dead. Let's look firstly and consider the centrality of the resurrection in the Christian faith. The centrality of the resurrection in the Christian faith. Let's do a thought experiment. Think for a moment if the disciples had wanted to start a new religion and they had the, the life of Jesus to work from. Why would they have chosen to put all their eggs in the basket of the resurrection? They could have started a, a new religion based on the wonderful teachings of Jesus. They could have focused on his miracles. They could have had Jesus dying as a great martyr for a great cause. But that's not what the disciples did. Instead, they made the resurrection the, the central part of their, their teaching and their announcement, the good news, the gospel. And from day one, they started to preach about the resurrection. Here's, 
Here's Paul on, on the, sorry, Peter on the day of Pentecost. This is now some time after Christ's resurrection and ascension. In Acts 2.32 we read, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of this fact. Proclamation of the resurrection was really the main message of the early church. Had the disciples wanted to continue the work of Jesus, they didn't need to make the resurrection of Jesus the cornerstone of their theology, but they chose to. And it became the one thing that held everything together because it was the single greatest thing they'd ever experienced. It was the resurrection of Jesus that changed them from hiding away behind closed doors in fear to becoming the world changers that they went on to be. Remember Paul's words, that great rabbi turned Christian leader. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. And we are to be pitied more than all people. Here are just some of the, the ways in which the early church made the resurrection of Jesus front and central. Well, I've already mentioned in their preaching, the, the resurrection, this great fact of Christ coming back to life was front and central in their preaching. Think about the role baptism played in the early church. This rite of initiation into the community of disciples. It pointed back to Jesus' resurrection. Paul writes in Romans 6, Don't you know all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Verse 5, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. It was also because of the resurrection that Christians started to worship on a Sunday. Back in the day, in first century Jerusalem, the Sabbath was the day of rest. But the Christians wanted to worship God on, on Sunday, which was really the first day in the week that everybody was back at work. They made that their day of worship, Sunday. And they did that because of the resurrection. They were so happy about Christ's resurrection. So the early Christians have this intense focus on the resurrection of Jesus. And it points to its veracity, its truth. The second very important line of evidence relates to the empty tomb. Jesus wasn't buried in some out-of-the-way anonymous cave somewhere. He was buried in the personal tomb of a very well-known person, Joseph of Arimathea. And Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, is right there alongside Joseph's side as they bury Jesus. 
In Matthew 27, we, we read, There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He himself had become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. Here's another interesting twist in the story. If the disciples were making up a story about the resurrection of Jesus, or if they had wanted to steal Jesus' body in the middle of the night, they would never have allowed Jesus to be buried on the property of a member of the Sanhedrin. There is total clarity about where Jesus was buried. It's, it's all very official. We also know that the followers of Jesus were not expecting him to be resurrected, not at all. The woman who go early in the morning to, to wrap his body, they're not going to take him breakfast. They're going to wrap him in spices. The, the, the disciples are, are behind closed doors. Even when they receive news from the woman, we read this. The women come and they say they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And uh, I think there's a, a reference that um, the men thought they were talking nonsense when they heard that Jesus had been resurrected. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter, that's John, and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth, that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who'd reached the term first also went in. He saw and believed. And then there's this interesting comment in verse 9, which really reflects very badly on the disciples. Again, it's the kind of thing, if you were making this stuff up, you would have left this out. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So we see from the gospel accounts the surprise of everybody as they find that Jesus' tomb is empty. The woman, Peter and John, there's, there's no notion that he was going to be resurrected. And the enemies of Jesus also find that the tomb is empty. The Romans and the Jews, they would have loved to produce the body of Jesus. It would have brought an end to their, their preaching of the gospel. But nobody could produce the body of Jesus because the tomb was empty and Jesus has been 
resurrected. And so various stories have to be made up to explain away the empty tomb. And so we read in Matthew 28, uh, the gods are told, you must tell them the disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. And so the enemies of Jesus also acknowledge that the tomb is empty. And when both sides of an argument agree on the same facts, you can be pretty sure that that is the case. They disagreed on the reasons why the tomb was empty, but not on that it was empty. The third line of evidence that I'd like to focus on is the change that took place in the disciples. This is really powerful evidence for the truth of the resurrection. Think of the state the disciples were in when Jesus was arrested and crucified. They were downcast, despondent, devastated. Their three-year mission was over. It had, it had ended badly for them. Their former friend and comrade, Judas, he's just committed suicide. Things are bad. They must probably have been embarrassed. This, this man they followed, this miracle worker, this, this great teacher, Jesus, who they thought was going to bring in the kingdom of God, a, a new reign like under King David. That's what they were expecting. And, and instead of him being coronated as king, he's crucified. It, it's horrendous. This is the, the state of mind that the disciples are in. And now it's all over. When the disciples first hear of Jesus' resurrection or the empty tomb, we read in verse 24, it seemed to them like nonsense. Even Mary, when she sees the empty tomb, she, she sees Jesus, she just thinks it's a, a gardener. And so she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where he is and I will get him. Mary's not expecting Jesus to be resurrected. She's accepted the fact that he's dead. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, the two of them, their, their faces are downcast and we read them saying, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped, but we're not hoping anymore. And when Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room, we read that they were startled and, and frightened, thinking they're seeing a ghost. And Jesus has to say to them, why are you troubled? Why are you doubting? Look at my hands and my feet. Thomas, of course, is uh, the epitome of a skeptic. And Thomas, even when he hears from his friends, hey, we saw Jesus last Sunday. His response is, well, unless 
I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and my hand into his side. I will not believe it. So do you see the starting point, the, the mindset where these disciples were at? None of them expected Jesus to be resurrected. But they all changed when they saw Jesus again. And that's the way to explain the change that took place in him. Another example would be that of Jesus' brother, James. Early in Jesus' ministry, we, we read that James is a little bit embarrassed about Jesus. And the family gets called. I don't know why, but we read in Mark 3, 21, when the family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. You know, just excuse our crazy brother. Uh, we, we're coming to take him away. That was Jesus' family at one point. But later, James becomes the bishop of the church of Jerusalem and, and would write his letter, the letter of James. His life also changed. And why did it change? Well, partly as the ministry of Jesus progressed, but, but particularly because of the resurrection. Then there's the evidence of the appearances of Jesus. We've just read how the woman changed when they unexpectedly bumped into Jesus outside the tomb. We've seen how some of the disciples changed after they saw Jesus in the upper room. A week later, we see how Thomas has his world turned upside down as he sees Jesus in the flesh. We know how the great rabbi Saul of Tarsus changed after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus a good while later. Later, Paul would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Why does Paul write, most of whom are still living? He's saying, ask around. Ask the people that were there. They saw Jesus alive and well again after the crucifixion. Jesus was seen at many different times and by many different people. Here are some of those occasions. Mary and Mary Magdalene at the garden tomb. Cleopas and a friend on the Emmaus road. The disciples bar Judas and Thomas that first Sunday night. Later, a week later, Thomas. There's Jesus' appearance when he makes a bride for his disciples while they're fishing. 
That was the time they caught 153 fish. There was on the mountain in Galilee to the 500. And then finally, as he ascended in, on the Mount of Olives. People seeing Jesus, this was not a hallucination. These were not drug-induced visions. The Bible stresses for us the, the rational nature of Jesus' appearances to people. This is what Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Then there's a reference to David and a prophecy of David. Verse 31, seeing what was ahead, David spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That his body would not see decay. And then Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of this fact. The kind of people who claim to see Jesus alive again were not fools. Yes, it is possible for people who've lost a loved one to, to think they're having seen a glimpse of that person again. But that's not what's happening here. Moving on. There's one changed life that is worth a point all of its own. And that is the changed life of a man called Saul of Tarsus, a Jewish rabbi. Let's focus for a moment on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He's radically committed to the Jewish faith. He describes himself as being circumcised on the eighth day. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. For legalistic righteousness, faultless. Saul had reached the top. He was an outstanding citizen. Saul was the epitome of someone living out the Jewish faith to perfection. Everything is as it should be. He even has the good fortune of being born into the right family and the right tribe. He's reached the top. And he's zealous for his religion. That he's, he's out suppressing dissent among these followers of Jesus. He's, he's destroying the church and he's convinced that he's doing it for God. At the stoning of Stephen, we're told there's a young man who's looking after the people's clothes. And his name is Saul. 
In Acts 9, we read about how he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. It's a picture of someone huffing and puffing and wanting to destroy the church and have people thrown into prison. Why would a man like Saul change? Why change sides? Why give up his, his status in his community, his wealth, his lifestyle, his reputation? Well, it's because he met Jesus. On the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with Jesus. And the Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he is forever changed. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, about the appearances of Jesus. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul's experience, Saul of Tarsus' experience, to use his other name, was an unusual one. But he too saw Jesus and that's what changed him. And then there's the growth of the Christian church. How do we explain the, the growth of the Christian church? Well, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, his message is God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. And after he's finished preaching, we read that 3,000 people were we're saved. We're added to the church. No one can deny the remarkable way in which the church grew, in which the followers of Jesus multiplied. This is historical fact. Look at the church. It's around the world. It all started here in Jerusalem. It's noticeable, too, that the church grew fastest in and from the place where Jesus had been crucified and where people had seen him resurrected. The church grew as it did and spread around the world because people were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And my final piece of evidence today relates to the persecution of the church. As terrible as the persecution of the church was, in some ways it is a blessing for us because it did help to establish the truth of the Christian faith. Many of us have very little grasp of the extent of the persecution. Justin Martyr writes these words. It is evident that no one can terrify or subdue us who have believed in Jesus over all the world. For it is plain that though beheaded, crucified, thrown to wild beasts, chains and fire and all kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. 
Instead, the more such things happen, the more others in even larger numbers become faithful and worshippers of God through the name of Jesus. That's Justin Martyr writing and saying how it didn't matter how much the early Christians were tortured and, per and, and persecuted. Their faith remained strong. And it is true that people will make up stories to impress and influence others. But it is highly unlikely, if not impossible, that people will make up stories for the fun of it and then be willing to endure torture and to be killed for what they know are lies. It's not like the twelve disciples became wealthy from the message they proclaimed. In fact, the early Christians, many of them, suffered horrendously for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. And they believed in the, resurre the resurrection because they had been persuaded that it was true. There was no selfish gain or advancement in the hearts of the early Christians. In conclusion then, let me remind you of what Peter writes. Christian, be prepared to give an answer to, to everyone who asks you to give the reason or reasons for the hope that you have. It's not just good enough that we know what we believe. It's as important to know why we believe it. And as that great convert from Judaism to Christianity, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Our faith is useless. If Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins. We're not being transformed. There's no hope of heaven. And we are to be pitied more than all men. The resurrection of Jesus is a historically verifiable event. It is potent evidence for the truth of the gospel. I've shared just a little of the evidence with you today. But here it is again, my six points. Think of the, the place of the resurrection in the, the Christian faith. It's right there, front and central. You take away the resurrection, you have nothing, says Paul. Think of the, the empty tomb. Nobody could produce the body of Jesus. Think of the change that took place in the disciples, in the, in the woman that went to the tomb. How and why did they change? Well, it's, it's best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Think of all the appearances of Jesus after his, his resurrection. In different places, in different contexts, even people like Thomas 
adamant that they will not believe it, are persuaded. Think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the successful Jewish leader with everything going for him. He gives it all up. He says, I consider that all rubbish now, now that I know Jesus. And think of the persecution of the, the early Christians. Would they really have been tortured for lies? Would, they, would the gospel message really have spread as it did had Christ not been resurrected? Thank you for listening today and I wish you a, a wonderful Resurrection Sunday whenever you're listening to this. God bless you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus into this world that he experienced life from our perspective. Thank you that he lived a perfect life and that he gave his perfect life as an atoning sacrifice for us. And thank you, Lord, that you, you accepted his sacrifice and that you brought him back to life. We worship you. We thank you, Father God. And we thank you that there is so much evidence for his resurrection. And we thank you that the same power that brought Christ back to life is at work in our lives. And that just as Christ's body was transformed from a, a physical body to a, a resurrection body, a physical and spiritual body, that we too have this hope of a, a, a resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that you're coming back and we pray that we would be ready for you. And all God's people said, Amen.